My name is Dr. Ian Storch. I'm a board-certified gastroenterologist and osteopathic physician, and you are listening to DO or Do Not. If you're interested in joining our team or have suggestions or comments, please contact us at doordonotpodcast.com. Share our link with your friends and like us on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. My name is Christine Lee, OMS4 at the New York Institute of Technology College of Osteopathic Medicine. On today's episode of the DO or Do Not podcast, we have Dr. Adam Goodkoff, a graduate of West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine and a current third-year emergency medicine resident at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Beyond clinical medicine, Dr. Goodkoff is an influencer who posts amusing and educational reels that explain a multitude of medical diagnoses and procedures into digestible pieces of information, helping medical students through a blend of education and entertainment. He has over 2 million followers across TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. In today's interview, we will discuss Dr. Goodkoff's journey through medicine as an osteopathic physician and how he was inspired to pursue a career in medicine and social media. He will share his tips to being successful in medical practice and his decisions on his personal future path. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Adam, thank you so much for being with us tonight. I'm really excited. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so our, our students are totally excited about you being on the podcast. And specifically, I want to talk about you being an yeah. sir and your internet presence. And then obviously, we want to hear about you as a doctor and your journey. But can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this whole thing and what you do? Yeah, Online. so it's, it, it's, it's been quite the uh, interesting pathway. So I actually started back in college. I wrote a, a blog, an anonymous blog online, and it was on a site called Tumblr, which I think students probably don't even know what that is these days. But it was it was just kind of a place where you could write blogs and it was all preset, very easy to do. So I would type these things up. And the truth was, you know, I wasn't the strongest student in high school. And I thought I wanted to be a doctor. I was an EMT at the time. But I didn't know if I would actually get into medical school. And so I said, let me start. Actually, I guess credit where credit's due. At the time, I was dating a girl who was in social media. And I thought it was so dumb, to be honest, at the time. I knew nothing about social media. And I'm like, she was a little bit older than me. She had a job and she was working for full-time social media. And I was like, I can't even believe that's real. And she had said, you should really chronicle your experience. You like to write, do a blog. I said, all right, fine. And I wrote this blog. And my thought was kind of, hey, I'll just be open and honest because it's anonymous. I can talk about everything. And I'll share the good, the bad, the ugly, and we'll see if I get there. And if I get there, well, then I guess it will be a great guide for someone who wants to do the same thing, who feels a connection to what I've written. And if I don't get there, it's anonymous, so I don't have to be super humiliated and everyone can see what didn't work. And uh, obviously, it did work out, at least wherever it is. That's what my scrubs say. (laughs) And so... I kind of finished the the blog, went to med school and realized I didn't really have time. I tried something called the pre-med life, which is obviously where the med life now. And so I was like, well, I know about pre-med. Let me make videos to help them. And it just never really caught. I didn't have the time to dedicate to it. I'm sure we'll get into time later, but um, I I couldn't do it in med school. I didn't didn't have the uh, ability yet. And so it really wasn't successful. And towards the end of med school, I... Did a, I did a teaching fellowship, which at some DO schools is is an option. Um, so I extended by a year. I taught anatomy and I actually added ultrasound on as well. And so I was instructing to first and second year students. And what it was, was I had like faculty hours. So I was, you know, coming from first and second year, very rigorous to now having the evening off at 5 p.m. every day. It was like earth shattering. So I learned Spanish first. And once I learned Spanish, I was like, well, I still have time. 
I liked doing the, you know, kind of videos and things in the past to help people. Let me start it up again. And so we started with YouTube and it wasn't working. And my good friend, Josh, who's behind the scenes on all the stuff that I do, he actually came to me and said, Hey, these Instagram influencers are really big. And I'd actually just deleted my Instagram. I felt like I was spending too much time on social media. And so he said, you have to download it again. Just make a professional account. It doesn't have to be with your friends. And we'll just start posting the same kind of stuff there. I said, okay, fine. So we started doing just the classic you know, photos and captions. And it brought me back to my blog days. And I was writing these kind of longer form captions, which at the time was atypical. And people started to connect over those. And so we started to build a following slowly but surely and kind of built up um, an audience that liked to read what I had to say about med school and rotations and my experiences and so forth. And that led us to the pandemic. And I guess that was really the accelerator or like kind of the fuel on the fire. TikTok had just come around. I'd gotten on TikTok and right place, right time. You know, I'd been working hard for a long time and the videos gained traction and people were looking for a reliable health source. I connected with med students. I connected with the general public and it it really helped to kind of fuel the the exponential growth that we saw. And the rest is kind of history. We really uh, found a niche and and have continued to grow and expand. And and since then, have kind of changed what we do a little bit each time. And I think we're we're really happy with where we're at now in in the educational space. I totally apologize that I haven't seen the videos before. My kids obviously are big TikTok and Instagram and all of the social media platforms. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you try to accomplish with the videos, what the goals are, and how things have evolved? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think when I started, my goal was to just reach med students and kind of, it was called the med life because I wanted to, and my my handle is see the med life. My idea was I wanted people to see what medicine was like. I felt like I had really struck a balance between, you know, becoming an exceptional student and doing well academically, but also having fun. I was going to Europe, you know, saving money and going skiing in the Alps and doing it on a budget. And I, you know, I just found ways to have fun and we would do weekend trips. And to me, a lot of people think I'm crazy. Med school was like the best years of my life. I don't think I'll ever do anything as fun as that. It was zero stress outside of grades, but I mean, you would go and study and I had friends at the time who had jobs and I would see the, you know, the junk that they would go through on a daily basis I was like, I have no job. My job is just to learn material. And then I get to do it around my friends. I'm working out. I'm eating healthy, like pretty low stress overall, you know? And so I, I felt like sharing that insight and that like, it's not all bad. It can be good. And it's how you budget your time. And so, you know, there was a lot of that content early on. And then it transitioned to some public health content during COVID because that's what needed to be out there. You know, just kind of translating science and getting that in front of folks. And then we kind of went through a, a re reimagination of ourselves and I had this time frame during residency where I was like, okay, I've shown the public what we do, but this is not really what I'm passionate about as a whole. What I love to do is educate. It's why I did a teaching fellowship. It's ultimately why I'm here. And so we transitioned to this year, starting the summer. It's almost a curriculum on my Instagram and uh, the, the TikTok and YouTube follows. And every month we do a specific subset. So GI is actually this month, um, but we've done cardiology, trauma, pulmonology, all sorts of specialties so far. And every month there's structured content around four different cases with the idea being that the learner does the case, finds out what they don't know, and then throughout the week can build that knowledge by watching my videos. And so at the end of the week, if they were to go back and do the case again, which these are choose your own adventure, we call them. So if you actually today is the perfect time, if you watch, especially from a GI perspective, unfortunately, the users absolutely tanked this case and uh, killed the patient actually. And so First time we've had to do it in a couple months, we actually rewinded the case. And so we said, you know, you've made it so far down the wrong decision tree. This is a good learning opportunity. This is a simulation. We're going to take it back. And we started again. 
So this is the first time it's happened, but it gives learners a time, a chance to interact in a low risk environment. Um, nobody's judging them. And then they get, you know, free education. And so that's what we're really passionate about is this, this educational content and, you know, where we're going with it. We're going to continue that. And we're bringing in some medical technology. I'm a big tech fan. I think there's some really cool stuff and, uh, I don't think I can reach it from here, but I just got a, uh, you know, a really cool ring cutter that just came out some, some other just tech stuff that I, you know, want to share with everyone out there and um, make them aware of, of what's going on. Cause medicine is a, it's a super innovative field. And I think we're on the edge of some really exciting technology. So Adam, one of the videos I was watching just so the, the listeners can kind of envision before they go on your site and watch it themselves was on hypoglycemia. You were showing a video of, of a man like kind of drunk walking down the street and then just highlighting like you need to think about hypoglycemia in this context. So correct me if I'm wrong, you know, rather than just reading that in a book, it's giving a visual and making the connection. Is, is that right? That's absolutely correct. We try to use as much reasonable b-roll as we can while obviously you know maintaining you know being appropriate and staying within guidelines but um the idea is to make something that's visually engaging that's memorable for the viewers so that they're not just reading a textbook and again you know something that we talk about on social media is like we're fighting for people's attention always and so making educational content this has not been easy it's been one of the hardest things that i've done committing to being educational because a lot of my colleagues will do you know more viral content reacting and things like that I can't do that. I can't hook someone with, you know, a viral video like that. I need to stick to education and do it that way. And so what we found is some some form of uh, you know, visual aid that that helps things stick. As someone's scrolling through and consuming that viral content, they're like, you know what? I will take 30 seconds to get educated because this is this looks interesting and they'll watch. Really cool. Super cool. On the same topic, you know, and again, I know what you do is different. And I think I mentioned to you earlier, I was watching a virtual shadowing video that you did maybe a year or two ago. And one of the things that you said, which I've definitely noticed also, is that a lot of the influencers, and again, I think your your point that the things that you're doing are a little different than some of the other physician influencers, but a lot of them are DOs, right? Can you comment on that? And why do you think that is? It's a, it's a great question. I, w- I wish there was a a really easy answer for that. There are a lot. Dr. Mike is kind of the grandfather of uh, of physician influencers. I believe he went to NYIT. Actually, he's in Jersey now. He's a DO. Uh, there's a lot of us that are that are DOs that are physician influencers, and I think it kind of comes back to some of the DO candidates are just just really well rounded individuals who have a lot of other interests outside of medicine, and I think that shines through in that we continue to you know be great clinicians and strive to be excellent in academics, but um, also have other interests that we want to carry out. And, you know, there's kind of this philosophy in DO that it's like caring for the whole unit and education to me, patient education is a component of that. And so when you're caring for people, being able to do that knowledge translation and help them understand their condition, I think sets you apart as a physician. And so it's only natural that if you're doing that every day at work, that's going to come natural on social media. Now being on social media is not for everyone, but, uh, kind of gives us that skill set and uh, again the the importance that it's you know patient centered care so the way that we approach kind of our diagnosis and treatment maybe is a little bit more patient focused sometimes and that that revolves around education and connecting uh, with your patients my next question is and I'm looking at your jacket as we talk and I've been called out on this once myself so this is not a commentary on the script over your lab coat but a lot of DOs sometimes don't put DO after their name and they'll just put doctor before. Again, I am guilty of this at times, but 
most of the influences like yourself, Dr. Mike, Dr. Jen Caudill, there's no DO after their name. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I think, unfortunately, it still is an uphill battle as a DO in medicine from patients and from colleagues. And you know, the emergency department is also kind of a unique place as I'm learning and getting getting more senior, uh, about to graduate here. You really have to earn your respect. A lot of people, unfortunately, don't don't think very highly of a lot of emergency physicians. It, they they find it somewhat bothersome. And so, you know, last thing I'd want to do is give someone kind of ammunition to start off on the wrong foot. And whether that's right or wrong, you know, having just doctor at the beginning of your name kind of neutralizes that. It, it leaves one less thing off for them to pick up and say, you know, to their colleague, oh, that guy's a DO. Of course, he doesn't know, you know, what I'm talking about, which is, of course, there's no merit to that statement at all. And in fact, as you know, a lot of DOs are some of the top performers on it, on um, you know licensing exams as well and step one and so forth. So it has nothing to do with your ability to perform clinically, but unfortunately there is still some some stigma in the hospital. And so I, I purely don't have it because it's just not a conversation that I feel needs to happen on a daily basis. I think that people should judge us for the care that we give and not the title that's next to our name, especially since we provide the same exact level of care. That said, uh, you know, I know we were speaking earlier. I think it is, it's a nice touch, especially, you know, as uh, I've kind of carved out a space for myself and in what I do to kind of advertise that I am a DO. And again, you know, Dr. Mike's a DO, I'm a DO myself. And there's, there's a lot of other DOs on social media. And it does beg the question, why are there so many DOs in these, you know, public facing uh, uh, positions that are, you know, basically excelling in, in these roles? And, uh, there's, there's a lot of discussion that could happen on that. So I think it kind of goes both ways. And it's a wishy-washy answer. It's not on my scrubs. I had the scrubs made a long time ago, but it, it may be nice. Maybe something that I'll do in the future is kind of switch back and have DO at the end. Again, Adam, after I got called on it, I switched all my scrubs to DO. So yeah. I totally get it. And I, I appreciate the answer. We're going to shift gears a little bit and just talk about you as a doctor and then your journey. So can you tell us what your day looks like. So you're an ER resident, is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm sure a little hard. Can you start by telling us what time you open your eyes in the morning and take us through a general day? Maybe, you know, what kind of patients you saw, maybe what a couple of patients that you saw today, you know, just give us an idea of what your day looks like as an ER resident. Sure. So uh, today's a great example. Unfortunately, emergency medicine doesn't follow a regular schedule. So my eyes opened at 1 p.m. today. I'm on nights right now. So I've seen no patients today. And, you know, my my schedule is definitely a little bit different, I think, than the average resident because um, I'm doing some different stuff outside of work. But uh, we'll focus on just the medicine aspect. So, you know, on a day like today, I would get up. Let's say, for example, I'm working nine to seven for most most of these night shifts. And so I would normally wake up around three o'clock, get up, have breakfast at that time, then go to the gym, uh, get my workout in for the day, and then sit down and, you know, studying emails, whatever else. Uh, it's a little overwhelming because when you wake up on a day, on a weekday, uh, your inbox is completely full. So rather than waking up and there's nothing and they kind of slowly come in over the day, you wake up to 30 emails, 20 text messages, whatever else it is. So there's kind of that that initial, you got to catch up. And then I'll prepare whatever food I need and kind of get ready for my shift. I get into my shifts. I, I come about 10 minutes early, not, nothing crazy. So I'll leave. Our hospitals vary, but I'll leave usually about 45 minutes before uh, my shift starts, get there, get set up. And, um, you know, we have a very high acuity of patient population here. Our, our patients are super sick in Chicago. So um, like, for example, I, I can give you a, um, a patient I saw last night had a bilateral uh, PEs with right heart strain. So very sick patient ended up going to the ICU. 
one of the shifts earlier this block, I walked into work, picked up five patients in my first hour, saw none of them because a code came in. We finished that code. Another code came in. We finished that code. Another code came in. And so it was just, you know, you have those days. Was, I was four hours dealing with cardiac arrests and, you know, some of them very complicated. One of them was an electrolyte issue. So, you know, trying to, and actually this, this was a patient who came in kind of peri-arrest. I was fortunate enough to see on the EMS monitor, this super wide, almost junctional looking. And I'm like, huh, that could be an electrolyte issue. And sure enough, we transfer the patient over, no pulse. Um, and so we start going and it's, you know, ends up being a hyperkalemic arrest. And so we're going through all the drugs, all of ACLS and, you know, really using the brain. And then I finish those four patients. I still have five patients that my name is on that I haven't seen yet. So now I'm running around trying to get those started. And meanwhile, the nurses, of course, are slotting patients in all the rooms still. So it can be hectic kind of just running the whole shift. My big thing is is uh, my wellness for myself is to eat. So I always bring, like I was saying, food to my shift. So I will always find time to get food in somehow, get a couple bites in. And uh, then I'll wrap up my shift and go home. The nice thing in uh, emergency medicine is you wrap up and sign out. So I get all my patients as close to dispo or dispoed as, as possible. Then I sign out to the oncoming team and then I'll come home for night shifts. I... I'd rather get up early and be very tired at the end than vice versa. So when I'm coming home at seven or I'm getting out at seven, coming home by eight, I'm exhausted. I pretty much walk in the door, pass out. But I, I, that's just for me. I find that I'm more efficient if I get up and have those hours before I go into work. Some of my colleagues like to come home and relax, de-stress, watch a movie, whatever it is. I'm just exhausted and I go to bed. So that's, that's kind of my night shift uh, routine. Sounds like a rough day. And the four codes sounds like a really rough day. It, it was busy. That was that was quite the, uh, I think that's probably the worst. I was saying, I think it might be one of the worst shifts I'd had in residency, like hardest um, in terms of just, just acuity was, was yeah. sky high. All right, Adam. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up and when you decided you wanted to be a doctor. Yeah. So I grew up in uh, upstate New York, in Albany, New York. And like I mentioned earlier, I, you know, I did... I didn't know what I wanted to do early on. I was a swimmer in high school and I was, a, I was a pretty decent swimmer. I was being recruited for colleges. And somehow at the time I decided the best way I, I knew that I didn't want to swim anymore. I was really burnt out and I didn't want to do it. And it was hard to tell everyone because when you're being recruited for these top tier options, nobody just says, no, I don't want to go. And I just didn't have the confidence to say that at the time. So I said, well, let me pick a school that doesn't have swimming that will solve my problems. So, so I went to the university at Albany. But along the way, and even while I was swimming, I had I'd started as a volunteer firefighter, and I thought it was really cool to get involved with these emergencies. I went to one fire, and I was like, I think I'm done with that forever. It was terrifying. <laughs> Shout out to those who go into burning buildings. It's nothing like the movies. It's it's horrifying, and I would never like to do it again. And so that was that was out very quickly. But I liked the EMS part, and so I got involved in EMS. And you know, I kind of again much support to the paramedics, but I realized I wanted a little bit more than that. I wanted you know, some more higher level of care and some more procedures and things like that. And so I did some shadowing and, you know, started to get more interested in medicine. And ultimately I realized I wanted to pursue medicine in, in some capacity, most likely to become an ER doctor. And so when I started at the University of Albany, I, I took the pre-med classes, I did biology and, you know, it kind of just took off from there. I kept doing EMS. I was very passionate about the clinical care. I got involved in some research, some, some uh, like rapid response team stuff within the hospital and learning about that early on and and the rest is kind of history. It just was a, a path, you know, right on there from, from college into med school. So tell us when you found out about osteopathic school, when did you learn about osteopathic school and tell us how you chose your school? Yeah. So 
my aunt was a is a neonatal nurse practitioner, and uh, she gets a lot of credit for for getting me really incredible exposures early on in high school. I actually spent a summer in Jersey doing some NICU research, and uh, you know, I got to meet some DOs there. One in particular, Dr. Orsini, did a course on I think it was called like Breaking Bad News, and it was basically teaching you how to break bad news to patients, which for anyone that's done it is is very difficult. And unfortunately, something we do all the time in emergency medicine. And uh, I was I was really impressed by his bedside manner, by his ability to you know conduct this training and really mm-hmm. communicate well with the patients. And so from there, I started to learn you know the difference between DO and MD or or the lack thereof, um, but also just the approach and training, kind of the more holistic patient centered model. And it got me interested. It got me interested in in what that might look like. And I started looking around. And uh, I'm always you know I've always been super open and honest. I applied to both MD and DO. I got many, many, many more opportunities at DO schools. And so I started interviewing and uh, it was very fortunate. I had a, a pretty strong application and went all across the country for interviews and kind of had my choosing of where I wanted to go. And for me, what I found was that I really wanted a campus feel. I didn't want uh, some of these schools have a kind of a warehouse feel. It's just everything in one uh, one warehouse in the middle of a random industrial park. And even though the location was nice for those, that wasn't something that I wanted as my like academic experience. And so, you know, uh, when I, I chose WVSOM and when I went down there for the tour, I was just sold immediately. I, ironically and unrelated, my mom is actually from very close to Lewisburg, West Virginia. So kind of a, a random coincidence. And so I went down there, I got to see where she grew up. And then I went on the tour to the school and I was just like, I instantly knew that was the spot. Everybody was super friendly. The academics and the the opportunities were plentiful. There was a lot going on and it had just a beautiful campus kind of nestled in this quiet area of West Virginia. So perfect study environment, not too many distractions. And, uh, you know, I'm actually, a, I really enjoy the outdoors, big mountain bike person. And uh, I had access to all of that there. So that's how I chose it. Yeah, that's awesome. So now were you, were you looking to just get out of New York? Was that part of it? Or I feel like I always get drawn back to New York. So I'm always curious. Yeah, I, I had, I, I wanted to get out of New York. I had been there my whole life. I went to college there. I felt like I needed a change and being, you know, I'm from, uh, from a small town actually called Clifton park. And so Albany was only, you know, 20, 30 minutes from there. I love my parents, but I was very close to them this whole time. And so I was, you know, now I'm 20, I was at the time I was maybe 22, 21 or 22 years old. And I was like, I want to stretch my legs a little bit and kind of, you know, live on my own. And so I didn't necessarily want to move all the way to West Virginia, but, uh, again, it was the, by far the, the best option for me, at least in terms of feel and fit. And uh, yeah, it gave me, gave me a little independence. So you told us earlier in the interview that you didn't really have that much time to do sort of your influencer thing during med school because you were working really hard. Was Were there other extracurriculars that you did? Or did you really focus on your studies? And then can you cycle that into, you know, how you decided you want to be an ER doc? Yeah, Absolutely. I did. I did get involved. I think I was the vice president of wilderness medicine, which was a great experience. I'm uh, turns out I'm not super interested in wilderness medicine, so it's okay to get involved and realize it's maybe not for you. Uh, but I got involved with that, and I just did some interesting projects. I thought helicopter medicine was really cool, like uh, call it like HEMS or helicopter EMS, and so. At one point, I was doing some research with one of the directors of, uh, I think it was called HealthNet or LifeNet in West Virginia. They do a ton of flying there because everything is so rural. So they fly a lot of patients and the patients there are just insanely sick. And the injuries, these farming injuries are like things that come out of a TV show. So really interesting cases. So I got involved with that. 
geez, this is going back. I'm trying to think of other things that I did on campus. Um, but I wasn't, I will say I wasn't one of the like hyper achievers of involvement. I recognized that the key to success in medicine is strong academic performance. No matter what way you cake, cut the cake, no matter what way you think you're involved, president of this, student senate, none of that matters. I can tell you looking at student applications, it those are enhancers. But if you don't have the baseline performance on your step scores and you don't have the baseline rotation performance, especially in emergency medicine or your slows, you know, if you're not good clinically, it doesn't matter that you were the Senate president, whatever, this, that, and the other, did this many volunteer hours. Those are just kind of amplifiers. But if you don't have that baseline level, it, it, you're not going to get where you need to go. So I really kind of doubled down on that, did as much as I could on on academics to really excel and excel on my board exams and you know, just got involved with what I enjoyed, did some research here and there. And, and then, like I said, I did the teaching fellowship, which was, uh, you know, another great decision. We've had a few people on the podcast that were teaching fellows. I did not do that year, but I do have fond memories of some of my mentors who were teaching fellows when I went through med school. What made you decide to do that? Because it's an extra year, right? Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. So I was actually, I've been teaching my whole life. I was teaching swim lessons since I was a kid. I used to teach ACLS and BLS when I was in college, um, make a little money on the side. And I just, I really enjoy teaching and I got great feedback all the time. People really like to hear my style of teaching or the way that I connected with students. And so, you know, there's, there's tuition forgiveness with that. I'll tell you, you know, hindsight and being a lot more financially smart at this point, it's, it's not a great financial decision. Uh, You'll come out on top if you, if you get out a year earlier and just advance your salary that much sooner, but it was invaluable experience as a junior faculty member to get to see what an academic system looks like, to work with learners and experience the challenges that go through from the faculty side, uh, writing test questions and item analysis. And, you know, so I, I talked to some folks that were doing it and I realized this is kind of a one-off opportunity that I'll never get again. And I added to it, it was just an anatomy fellowship. And I said, can I make this kind of an ultrasound fellowship also? Because Ultrasound was on the rise. It wasn't incorporated into DO curriculum yet, and it was an MD. And so, you know, I'm a big fan, again, of supporting kind of the DOs out there. I think we're incredibly strong clinically. And I was like, this this should be in our curriculum for sure. And so I kind of helped spearhead getting that in. We wrote a paper, kind of uh, forced the issue that this should be in DO school curriculum. And uh, I think from what I've heard, it's more widespread now. More students are, are learning uh, ultrasound earlier on. And there's a lot of papers to show that learning it in conjunction with anatomy helps improve your your understanding of the imaging. So, you know, that's why I paired them or, or did them together. And, uh, you know, again, I think it was it was invaluable. Gave me a ton of skills coming into, you know, my clinical years in residency with ultrasound. I definitely feel like I was kind of ahead of the curve on that. And then having the anatomy knowledge uh, was was super helpful as well. That sounds great. Yeah, it sounds like an awesome year. So then you applied with that extra year for ER. Tell us a little bit about what programs you were looking at, how you made your decision on the program that you chose, and how you felt applying to ER as a DO. Yeah, those are all great questions. And I could probably do a whole podcast on on mm-hmm. just that, but I'll try to keep it brief. So again, I, uh, I've always been honest about my application. So hopefully, you know, try to be as humble as I can. And people just take this for knowledge and not anything else above that. But um, I had pretty strong step scores at the time. Nothing insane, but they were definitely competitive and above average in emergency medicine, DO or MD unrelated. And uh, so 
I knew that I was going to have some opportunities. And the the one big thing that I needed to do was make some connections. Nobody had really heard of WSOM in the EM world. There, I don't think we really even had a formal EM mentor or someone that was board certified in EM that was like a faculty member. So it was it was pretty limited from the uh, advisement side. So I really had to work and go out and get my own advisors and kind of mentors in this space. And what I did was I I set myself up with really strong away rotations because I've always been good clinically. Again, I had five years of EMS experience. I connect with people well. And so test scores are one thing. Again, that's your entry ticket, but it's kind of icing on the cake if you can go there and you can actually walk the walk. And so I went to Allegheny General in Pittsburgh, um, which was a, a, an incredible rotation. I'm very thankful to them for that opportunity. And I went at the end of third year and that kind of kicked me off. I was living in Pittsburgh at the time that kicked me off to really shine. And I got two huge aways after that because I knew, again, my ability to get really incredible opportunities to interview was going to be in those away rotations. And so what I did was actually, I, you know, targeted geographically, I went to UConn, which is just an incredible program. And I, you know, can't thank them enough for my time there as well. I love that program. And then the other one that was huge and, and relatively groundbreaking is that I rotated at Pitt. And to my understanding, the to that point, had never had a DO rotate there, or if if they had, it was many, many years ago. So it was it was not common for DOs to go there. And that was actually one of the things that I targeted was I wanted to rotate at a site that doesn't take DOs and kind of break that barrier. Because to me, if I could go to a place that doesn't take DOs or thinks less of DOs and then impress them and come out with a top 10% slow, then there's nowhere that wouldn't look at me. And, and that's what I, I mean, I don't, you don't see your slow, but my understanding is that I, I did very well when I was there. I had a really nice time there as well. And again, I can't thank them enough. It's an incredible program there. And, you know, ultimately it didn't, didn't end up being the, the best fit for me. It's not where I decided that I wanted to be, but again, I can't thank them enough for having me and, you know, letting me rotate there. And it was, it was an incredible experience. And so then it came time for interviews and I applied broad and I tiered my applications. I probably applied a little bit more than I needed because I really wanted to try some of those reaches and again, try to break down barriers and prove that being a deal wasn't going to limit me, even though I knew there was going to be that discrimination. And so I had some, some really strong interviews that uh, I was really excited about across the country. I'm trying to think back, but you know, I went to Austin, which I don't know that they had had a deal. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but you know, it was a strong program, relatively new, but very strong program. I interviewed at a couple of places here in Chicago Interviewed all along the the East Coast, up and down, except for New York City. I wasn't uh, particularly interested. EM in New York City is a different beast. I rotated at St. Joe's as well, and I don't want to forget them. They were an incredible. They're they're slept on for sure. That program is is insane. They see tons of acuity, and I learned a ton there. So that was incredible. I interviewed there as well, and uh, yeah. So I, I you know I took a, I took a fair amount of interviews. Because I could, because I worked really hard for that opportunity. And I wanted to really make sure that when I picked where I went, it's where I wanted. And it's not that I felt, uh, I don't know if I'm going to get in. I, you know, I don't know if they're going to rank me. I need to apply strategically. I wanted it to be like, this is my game. I'm playing the game and I'm picking where I want to go. And uh, so that's, that's kind of how I did it and put a lot of work in. And, and ultimately it was, you know, risk at the end of the day, applying to some of those places, but I guess, you know, it paid off and, I felt like the one thing too, I'll mention this, this is important for the students listening is I made it really important that I didn't want to chase, like chase clout, so to speak. Like I didn't want to chase a name. And that was something that was really difficult. I've never, never, I guess, talked about this one on a podcast, but again, I love Pitt. I have friends that are at Pitt and I really appreciate them having me, but I had a really hard moment where I was like, I could potentially 
be, and, and who knows if they would have ranked me, but it felt like there was a good chance. And, you know, I was like, I could break down these huge barriers and be the first DO to go to pit, but I don't think I'm going to be that happy. It just didn't fit as well as I wanted to. And it was a huge thing, but I ultimately decided not to go there, obviously, and not to, not to rank them in a position that I thought I would end up matching them. And it came back to, I'd made that decision in the past, you know, I'd made sacrifices and been like, well, I need the name. I need the paper. I need this to, to feel like I'm doing something or feel like I'm making a name. And in residency, I chose my happiness. I decided that I wanted to make a decision for me and I had proven in my mind, I'd proven that I could do it. I went, I interviewed at all these places that people said you'll never interview at. And I felt like I'd done it. And so, you know, I'd worked so hard to this point all through med school that I was like, I just want to do what works for me. And UIC is is what worked for me. I loved my time here at the interview. I had a friend that I went to med school with that was here. And so I, you know, had the real inside scoop and I knew what I was getting into. I knew it was incredible clinical experience here. And that's that's what I settled on. I think any medical student that just listened to your journey should rewind it and listen to it again. Cause I think there were so many good points from just showing up to play you going and working and making, as you said, making it your game. I think that's amazing. And I think ultimately as DOs, sometimes, you know, we feel like we have something to prove and we do. And again, to your prior point, maybe that's why we're in so many places that maybe that's why the president's doctor's a DO and, and all yeah. these crazy things. But Absolutely. ultimately, at the end, sometimes you got to just take your foot off the gas, look out the window, say, okay, yeah, I can I can go to the moon, but maybe that's that's not where I want to go. Maybe I got to find out where I fit. Love that's it. exactly right. And, I, and I've noticed that throughout all stages, I'm looking for a job now. There's obviously, I kind of bring a unique skill set and there's definitely interest from places that I would have dreamed of of working at and I've kind of had to decide like what what is it exactly that I'm looking for right now because I've worked hard to be here and I need to work for me now and I need to you know find somewhere that I'm going to be happy in this stage and that may change in the future you know that things can always change but uh I always I always remind myself of that and it's one of the, my most proud decisions or, or things that I've done for myself was was making that decision for residency it was, it was very hard admittedly I, I struggled a lot when I was uh, making that rank list it's interesting too, Adam. I, I don't know if you see this, but when I started my journey, I thought it was really hard because I didn't have a lot of options, right? Like I was trying to figure out where to go to medical school and maybe that was a little limited. But I found at the end, when you have a lot of options, it's actually much harder. It's easy when Absolutely. you don't have a decision. Do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it becomes very clear. If you have no choices, you, you go there, right? That's the opportunities in front of you. But yeah, I when you start, you know, you have all these opportunities in front of you and you're weighing the pluses and minuses, it just gets really nitpicky. And, uh, you know, that's when I take a step back and I'm like, where would I be happiest? Like, what is going to make me the most happy? And that's what I try to choose things on now. So obviously it's a little early, but do you have an idea of what type of job you think would fit best going forward? Academic, community, rural, urban, like there's a lot of options and ER doc is very coveted. So what are your thoughts at this point? So I'm kind of doing an interesting path. I don't know that it's going to be you know, super applicable for a lot of students, but I've decided that I'm, I'm going to work part-time next year. I do a lot of things outside of of medicine that I'm just very passionate about. And I think it's kind of a limited window to excel and really take those to the next level. And so what I'm going to do is split my time exactly 50-50. So I'll work at about a, a 0.5 FTE as what I'm targeting for next year. 
And then I'll put the other 0.5 into the things that I work on outside of work. And, you know, in terms of what is the setting that I want to work in, uh, I think that's going to change as well. You know, early EM is a short program. It's three years. Thankful for that, not complaining, but I think there's still a lot of learning to do once you graduate and just getting out on your own and, and working through things. And so right now I'm a little tight-lipped about it, still figuring some things out. Definitely things happen pretty early in EM. So I've been interviewing and kind of actually at the end of that process. So I'm in the contract phase right now and, and figuring some things out, but you know, I think ultimately it's going to be a community, mainly a community site with maybe some opportunity for hybrid to work with um, some residents and medical students to be determined. But uh, that'll kind of give me some flexibility. And then I'm also going to be working at a PRN location as well. And um, excuse me, I'm actually, uh, th- this is not a secret, but I'm moving to DC. So I'll be taking my talents back to the East Coast. And that's that's what we're trying to settle in now, actually. So uh, we'll we'll see what, what ends up shaking out with that. And um, you know, they say some crazy high percentage of emergency medicine graduates change their job in the first three years. And, uh, you know, hopefully that's not me. I, I, you know, obviously you're looking for jobs for things that are compatible, but I think you do a lot of learning and personal growth in that first year also. And we'll see, you know, I would love to continue to teach and, and do the things that I do and maybe integrate that clinically as well. But things change pretty quickly. So, you know, we'll just have to see. Sounds really cool. Sounds very exciting. I was looking a, a little bit online at some of the other things that you're doing. So do you have a, a company that helps influencers? Is that is that one of the things that you're doing? I do. Yeah. So we have a company called Medfluencers. It's a startup. It's uh, basically physician or we should call it, you know, healthcare influencer marketing. We're made, we were founded by physicians for mainly physicians, but healthcare providers as a whole with the idea that this is not something that's talked about a lot. Again, this is truly a whole other podcast, but there's influencers. But then specifically within there, right? Everything, the microphone I'm using, the earpieces, everything, the lighting setup now, this this costs money, um, things that you just can't afford on your own. So to to support that, a lot of us work with sponsors. I'm sure you know many people have seen me in the Echo videos, love that company. I'm, I'm very close with them and I, I really believe in their product. And so we select a few sponsors to work with that help us to to make and deliver the high quality content that we do. And we realized there was a huge need basically of all these physician influencers going around kind of trying to take bites out of this, but not really knowing how much they're worth, you know, not protecting themselves with appropriate contracts, understanding rights usages. It gets very complex in this space because you got to imagine marketing is an entire field and you have physicians who are great at being doctors, but not at business or marketing. And so we wanted to become the service that could you know, help represent our physician colleagues and all of our friends that are on social media to make better decisions, to get better offers and support the work that they're doing. Because this is absolutely hands down a full-time job outside of what you do in medicine. It's probably more than full-time hours. And almost everyone that's doing you know, some form of influencing with with regularity with consistency is is putting in incredible hours and uh, you should be you know compensated appropriately for that and so we do that and then uh, you know we also have an arm that works kind of more on the brand facing side to help with you know account management kind of developing a vision so you know we've worked with other organizations like what what is your purpose on social media what are your posts going to be how often do you post how do you interact and so we help develop that strategy and execution as well so that's something that we work on uh, outside of what I do with the social media as well. And our big finale question is, can you give us one piece of advice that you were given from someone else? And that could be your parents, a teacher, somebody in medical school, 
a guy at the gym that you really feel was valuable to you along your journey and that you would like to pass on to our listeners? Yeah, there's a quote that I... I'm not going to say I live by it and not make it cliche, but it's something that I really reflect on often. And uh, it's this quote that's that's floated around. I don't know who, who first said it, but it's luck is where preparation meets opportunity. And I think that that really hits home. You always need to, you know, I, I was, like I said, I was a swimmer. I was always told, you know, outwork the guy next to you, put in more time, work harder and work harder and smarter and more efficiently. And that's not to say to put anyone down, you know, obviously from the business world, you know, it's all about actually helping other people and helping other people win. Um, And you can do that with working hard. But if you're constantly working hard and looking at yourself and making yourself better and working harder than you were last week, you're going to put yourself in a position of growth so that when that opportunity does come along, you're positioned to move on that opportunity. And I think that's kind of been the summation of how I've gotten to where I am is there have been many ups and downs. And again, we could we could talk extensively about that. I mean, there have been many times where I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm burnt out. I want to quit. I don't want to be, I don't want to be public. You know, I've had I've had problems with it too. You know, people coming after me personally and our our brand and you know, don't like what we're doing. And so it's not been an easy road. But my answer has always been I'm passionate. I know what I'm doing is right. I know I'm doing this for the right reason to to help with education, to spread this information. And I just keep working hard. And, you know, I'm very fortunate that opportunities arise. And when they're there, I feel like we're well positioned to to take advantage of them because we've been working so hard that, you know, it finally pays off. We have the opportunity to show and showcase what we've been doing. So yeah, I kind of, you know, luck, it's it's not really luck, right? It's it's preparation meeting opportunity. Um, and that's that's kind of what I live by. I gotta say, Adam, I think we're almost a hundred episodes in. We ask the question every time. I think you get the prize. I think that's the best answer. That's awesome. I appreciate that. All right, Adam. Again, thank you for giving us your time tonight. I know you're you're working a lot on five different things, but thank you for spending the time with us and for everything that you do. It's been a pleasure, Ian. Thank you. And thanks to everyone who listens. I appreciate it. This concludes our episode of Do or Do Not. Send all inquiries, comments, suggestions, and even let us know if there's someone you want us to interview to do or do not podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at Do or Do Not Podcast for updates. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your classmates and administration. We have plenty of more interviews lined up, and we're excited to share them with you. This is Tian Yu Shea. Thank you guys so much for listening to Do or Do Not.